that any better? There we go. Yeah, that's a chronic problem with me. It's the on, right? It's the on. Okay, yes, I'm, I'm square now. Good morning again. Um, it's, it's really an honor to be with you. I, I have wanted to visit this church ever since the first time I met these two people. And uh, Kim and I have so enjoyed our friendship with Ronnie and Melissa, and I have I've been the object of their care. Some of you guys can relate to this. I, I too, like you, have been the object of their care, of their encouragement, of their relaxed hospitality. And I have thought a number of times, if, if this is who they are, I can't imagine what substance must be. And I can't wait to be among the people of substance to experience that. So. It's a thrill for me to be here. Ronnie said I was passing through. I'm here for substance. That's why I came up north on this trip, to be with substance and to be with this couple right here. So thank you for receiving me so warmly. Ronnie mentioned that I I serve in Sojourn Network, and um, I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear the word network, but Sojourn Network is just filled with um, pastors. It's filled with broken pastors, filled with earthy pastors, um, guys that love their local church but are convinced that their local church will be stronger and their leadership will be stronger if they have a place where they can go when they need counsel or perspective or they hit a crisis or they need some, some training or care in some way. And It's also a place that they can go to be sharpened on the whole concept of mission. And that's part of what we're trying to do when we we care for pastors, is to keep them sharp. But it's not just about pastors, it's also about the churches that they they serve in. And, And because behind the pastors are these churches that love the idea of church planting and realize that we can do it more effectively if we kind of harness together and and harness some of our resources together. And, uh, and, and deploy it for the, for the mission of the gospel. And one of the cool things that we're seeing is that, you know, it, it is happening. There's, there's churches that are being planted all over. We, we have the privilege of, of supporting, I think, over a dozen church planters right now. Yesterday when I flew in, I met with Jason Bradshaw, who's planting down in Troy, and I uh, just hung out for the afternoon together, and that, that was such a thrill for me. So, you know, we're, we're not a big group and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful, and I sure am grateful that we're doing it in in partnership with with Substance Church. So thank you for listening. And now we turn our attention to the most significant thing that's going to happen in the meeting today, which is the opening of God's Word. So let's open to Psalm 63. Title of this morning's message is The Empty Soul. And I'd like to read beginning in Psalm 63, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 8. O God, you are my God. 
Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, our title this morning is The Empty Soul. And let's just stop and pray and go to God together and ask for for his help. So please join me. Lord, I... I pray now that you would would open up this passage to us and that you would care for us through your word and that you would speak this morning in a way that would compel us to be drawn to you and give us a fresh vision of your love and your care and your compassion for our life situation. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question this morning. When was the last time you felt hollow? Vacant. You know, like like all all of the spiritual life had just been flushed right out of your system. Maybe you're sitting there, you're saying, oh, that's, that's today. That was this morning. That was how I woke up this morning. That's how I came here. You're here and you feel empty, like, like a, a dry well, like emotionally parched. And any idea of the love of God, you, you recognize it theologically, but you don't have any existential experience of it. It seems lost to you. It seems foreign to you. It just isn't mapping onto your reality right now. If that's you, David wants to talk to us. Because before us is a hymn. It was composed by David. It was composed by David during a time of great duress in his life, during a time where his heart had been scraped so so bitterly by the experiences of life that he could barely find hope. And as we learn his story together, we're going to discover that the facts, quote unquote, are not very pretty at all. For instance, fact, Absalom, David's son, had stolen the heart of the people through an act of betrayal and had himself declared as king. 
fact, the son was now trying to exterminate the father. The son was trying to assassinate the father. Fact, David was set adrift. David was running for his life. David had to flee the flee where he led, flee the king's residence, flee the city, flee with a small group of people. And he's on the run now, wandering, not even knowing where he's going. In fact, there's a passage in 2 Samuel verses, chapter 15, verse 23, where it says that David's entourage, quote, passed through the Kidron Valley and moved on toward the desert, which is where this was written from, moved on toward the desert, and it was in that barren land that David's heart crashes. It just crashes. I mean, you read this whole thing and you begin to understand that he feels weak, he feels lost, he feels dry, he feels unloved, his soul tank is on E, he's got nothing to offer, he's got nothing to draw from. You know, there are some people that say that the that few blows crush the soul like the betrayal of one's child. That there's a unique quality of that particular life experience that just drains the desire for life until each day becomes a kind of funeral. You know, a kind of funeral where you, where you mourn the death of what our family should have been, what our family might have been. Listen, that's where David is, right there, right then, as he's writing Psalm 63. Because it's in that hour of darkness that David composes this song. And what this song does is this song embodies how David will respond in this dark night of the soul. And as we study it together, there is one kind of overarching theme that I think emerges from it. I'm going to put this in my own words, but I think it's a theme that, that it, is, it kind of redounds through the psalm. And I'm going to say it this way. It's that empty is as empty does. Let me say that again. Empty is as empty does. Now, that phrase is probably going to hit you in one of two ways. Either you're going to be sitting there saying, uh, huh? You know, what are you babbling about up there, Ronnie? Has this guy been vetted? Do we really invite this guy to speak? Or you might be sitting there saying, you know, that, that sounds like that Forrest Gump thing. You know, with Forrest talking to his mom and and, and Forrest always felt like he was stupid, and he was convinced he was stupid. And one day his mom said to him, Forrest, stupid is as stupid does. Meaning that true intelligence is found in actions, not in labels. That true intelligence is revealed in what we do, not necessarily in how we feel about ourselves. So, Empty is as empty does means desire for God is sometimes reclaimed by action, not by feelings. That it is sometimes restored to us by what we do more than what we feel when we lose desire for God. 
when we've lost that kind of you know, loving feeling or those, those experiences that we've had in the past, or we feel like it's just empty. So what I want to do with you is I want to look together at, at what David did so that we can look at maybe what, what we should do if we're in the same situation. So what should we do when we feel empty? Here's the first point. Go up. Go up. So again, remember the context. David's in the desert of Judah. He's being hunted by his son Absalom. He is weary and famished and feeling depressed and discouraged and desperate. He is feeling unloved. He is feeling betrayed. What's his first step? This is, this is the first line. David bears his heart to God. He says, oh God, you are my God. That's where he starts. He's desperate. He's empty. He's lost. He's disoriented. He's disillusioned. He feels betrayed. This is where he starts. Oh, God, let me just start here. You are my God. He begins by reasserting. I mean, let's, let's just go back. He begins by reasserting the existence of God. Okay, things are so bad. I just need to go back to the very beginning. I need to go back to where this whole relationship started, to how I got to where I am. Okay, that's right. God, you exist. And oh yes, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. You know what, sometimes things get so bad you just gotta go back to the basics. You just gotta go all the way back to the fact that no, I, I, know, I remember something happened back then I don't feel it now. I'm not experiencing it now. But back then, God was real to me. Oh, God, I believe you exist, and you are my God. That's what David's doing. He says to his soul, you are my God. I know I don't feel you. I don't see you. In fact, the fact that I'm saying this seems to defy all logic. In fact, when you look at my situation, it seems to totally unreasonable, irrational that I would come to this conclusion. But, oh, God, you are my God. I love the way John Calvin said of this, this psalm. He said, David does more than simply pray. He sets the Lord before him as his God. I love that idea. He, he sets the Lord before him. See, David has become aware of his drift. Have you become aware of a drift. What David does is he, he, he sets the Lord before him. He's, he's becoming conscious of lies that are being spoken to him. He's becoming conscious of an emotional place that isn't consistent with what he believes. So he sets the Lord before him. He basically says, I know who owns me. I know the one I follow. Empty may be my feeling toward God, but empty is not God's feeling toward me. You are my God. You know, if you're here this morning and you're a guest, um, you know, maybe you would consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're, you know, you're just fascinated by some of the Jesus stuff. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here this morning. You are so welcome here. But part of what it means to be a Christian is that God has fixed a reality for Christians at the cross and through the resurrection that exists completely apart from our feelings, completely apart from our present reality, and completely apart from our circumstances and events that take place in our life. 
Those realities begin with the fact that we are loved by God. Number two, He loved us so much that He sent His Son to substitute Himself for us and to pay the price for our sins. Number three, because He did that, we are adopted into the family of God and we have the Holy Spirit, number four, dwelling within us. Those are facts. They're undeniable. They do not change. You wake up tomorrow morning, you feel horrible. You wake up tomorrow morning, you feel happy. Those facts are intact regardless of how you wake up tomorrow morning. It's an objective reality that never changes. Which means that we, we kind of, we, we kind of plugging into where David is because David's basically saying, you know what? I may be empty toward God, but God is full toward me. I may feel empty, but oh God, you are my God. And I think there's some, I think there's some deep stuff that David is going to when he's coming to that conclusion. There, there is a sense where, where by going up, David makes God the answer to empty. You know, we're always looking around for what the answer to empty is supposed to be. Because when our desires are empty, our heart reaches for what's most available, what's most comfortable, what's going what's to get us through easiest. And we find ourselves kind of unintentionally altering verse 1 and starting to replace it with other things. Oh, Job, you are my God. I'm going to look to you. I'm going to retreat into you. I'm going to withdraw into you. You're going to be my sanctuary. You're going to be what serves me. You're going to be able to get me through this. Oh, entertainment, you are my God. Oh, social media, you are my God. And, and here's the mystery of this whole thing. It can be good things. It's not like it's just things that, that might be horrible. It, it could be, oh, spouse. I'm going to make this, oh kids, I'm going to make this all about you. I'm just going to make this about my family. I'm not even going to look up. I'm just going to look at them. I'm going to pour myself into them. And we have this swapping that goes on. But David's saying, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. My body aches for you. I, mean, I love the way... Uh, Another commentator said, David's whole being is restless and unsatisfied without God. That's where he is. Because David knows something that you and I often miss, and that is that lost desires can only be found in God, so he goes up. He feels empty, he goes up. And there's one other thing I want to pull out of this idea of, of David going up. Because... By going up, David is signaling something else that he knows in the back of his mind. And that is that David knows that God is the one who put him in the desert. See, when we cry out to God in the desert, one of the things that we're doing is we're rightly recognizing his role as king, his role as sovereign, and his role as being in ultimate control of the events of our life. And that's really important to reconcile within our soul because there is such a temptation in a situation like this to swap God out and see only Absalom as if Absalom is the one that's really driving all the events of your life. 
And, and you know what I mean by Absalom there. You know, in Scripture, Absalom is certainly first and primarily a person. But Absalom is also that unexpected blow that you never imagined in a hundred years that you would have to sustain. Absalom is that unexpected twist that diverts you from the life that you expected to have. You know, David is king. David's ruling over the kingdom. Life is wonderful for David. Next thing you know, he's fleeing. He never in a thousand years expected it with all the promises that he was sporting all the time that he would ever be in this position. And yet he's having to, he's being completely diverted from the path that he expected to be on. And the decision of another person in his family set off this chain of events that delivered him to a place that he never imagined he would be. David never expected the betrayal of his child. Who expects that their child is going to turn on them to such a degree that they're going to try to kill them? David never expected the loss of his home. He never expected to be displaced, to be wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, feeling like he's fleeing from his life, and he looks around, and it used to be that the whole kingdom was around him, thousands and thousands of people, and right now there's about 20 folks that are around him. You know, I, I can't relate to the kind of suffering that David went through, but there are, are portions of this that I, that I, can, I can locate myself in in that Kim and I left the Philadelphia area about four years ago after being in a movement, uh, a network, and in a local church for about three decades, same church that whole time. And, and the network, the, the denomination that we were part of had unexpected problems and un unanticipated challenges and mistakes and sins and ignorance and and by the way that was that's just me that's what I contribute I'm not even talking about other people and what they did that was just what I was bringing to the party but it all converged to deliver Kim and I down to Florida in in our 50s where we had always expected that we would live for the rest of our lives up in the Pennsylvania area and I'll be totally honest with you to say, I had to struggle with feeling almost defrauded by God. Because I felt like, I had to wrestle through this part where I felt like th there was this sense where I was unaware that I had created this arrangement with God, this kind of implied covenant. Maybe you can relate to this, you know. We don't express it explicitly, but we have this implied arrangement with God where, God, if we do things the way we're supposed to do them, and we try to do them right, and we try to do them in our best way, and we try to live by this value system, then you're kind of on the hook because we have this transaction. You're kind of on the hook to deliver this fruit, and this fruit will deliver us to this place. And so there's a certain predictability in my life, and I can determine where I'm going to be 10 years from now because I have visions, I have dreams. And the life I always expected to have in my 50s it just evaporated. It went away. And it left me disoriented. 
and empty and feeling exiled. And as for feelings, I mean, I couldn't trust my feelings. My feelings were scraped raw. The only option I had was to go up. And I see now, four years later, I mean, there's incredible vistas and new blessings that have opened up and unexpected things, but, but I, it wasn't like four years ago God was saying, now, Dave, just chill out, because I got some things. Let me just give you a preview. Let me just run the trailer on this one, and, and you can check it out, and that'll give you a little bit of faith, and then you'll know, no, God is typically saying, no, you know, I'm going to take you into the wilderness. I think that... It was, you used to be a man who walked by faith. You're now a man who walks by sight. You're going to go back into the wilderness. We're going to do a little one-on-one time, and I'm going to reclaim you for my mission. I'm going to make you a person who walks by faith and not by sight. See, maybe for you in this season, you feel like you're David. You are being chased. And when I say chased, I mean even, even mentally chased. You know, maybe the situation has resolved itself, but your mind is active, harassed, pursued. And, and it has a certain effect on you. You feel unloved. You feel emptied. But you're blaming Absalom. Absalom's getting far, more, more, far too much attention in your mind. The events, the circumstances, because God's not in the picture. See, for David, when he said, oh, God, you are my God, he put God in the middle of the picture. He held God accountable for his sovereignty. And he remembered, yeah, no, this is a God thing. This could have have never gotten this messy without it coming directly from God. So he learned that God had his own plan. Because sometimes God empties us just to reestablish his role in our life. Just to remind us of, hey, I'm God. You've lost that. So I'm going to bring you back to a place where you're saying, oh God, you're my God. And that's what happened with David. So if you woke up this morning feeling empty, and, and I just want to encourage you, follow David and go up. Because empty is as empty does. So we go up which leads us to the second point, and that is that we go back. We go back. So, in verse 2, David is beginning to recall these times where he was satisfied in God. And, you know, he's basically like, like saying, I, I remember back when I was in church. Look at verse 2. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. He's not in the sanctuary. He's in the wilderness. But there's something happening in David's mind. He's saying, I remember something. He says, I remember when my desires were filled. I remember experiences of power and glory that I had with the people of God. I remember encountering your steadfast love. We kept reading through that passage. We read in verse 6 where he was speaking of remembering God on his bed, meditating on the faithfulness of God during the night. In verse 7, he's thinking back on times where God has been faithful to him. He says literally in verse 7, you have been my help. See, don't miss what's happening here. 
David's soul may feel empty, but oh, his mind is full. His mind is active. And he is, what he's doing with his mind is he's intentionally remembering back to times where God was more real to him. And he's pulling those things forward. I think this is one of the most striking features of our whole proposition of empty is as empty does. In other words, David may feel empty, but he decides to fill his mind. He's going to say, I feel empty, but my mind is going to be full with something. My mind is going to be full with the past. And, and I'm going to respond to empty with the way I lived when I was full. And so that's what he's doing. The way, I'm going to respond to empty with the way I lived when I was satisfied, when God was real to me. Verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'm going to lift up my hands. He's talking about these acts of worship that he's going to do, even though he's not there right now. He says, I will praise you. I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My lips will praise you. I will sing for joy. These are astonishing words for a man in the middle of the desert. Do you see what's happening here? Going back takes him back to experiences of God's love and God's faithfulness where he's remembering when God was real to him and he's kind of pulling them forward. It, it's almost like, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever jumped a car with jumper cables, you know, the battery dies and you get two sets of cables and you get one cable, two, two sides and you hook it up to one side, hook it up to the other car. David is putting one set of cables in the past and he's throwing a charge forward. He's saying, I, I, you know, there was energy back then. It, I was alive back then. There was power back then. I'm going to throw the charge forward into this moment because right now I got nothing. So he goes back to God's love. He goes back to God's faithfulness, which will then trigger in David worship. This is what I want you to hear. This is a strategy. It's a strategy that David is employing for empty times. He goes back. I brought a quote with me from the great evangelist John Wesley, who said something. And the first time I heard this, I thought, that's brilliant. He said, preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. Preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. Here's the reason I bring that, that up. David is taking a similar approach. David is praising God until he is filled. Then he is praising God because he is filled. But this is important. David's worship is not because he's satisfied. It's not because his emotions are full. It's because to him, God is real. It's because to him, God is worthy. So going back helps him to charge his soul in the present it's like he's saying, you know what, I may be empty right now, but worshiping God, remembering God will fill me. And remembering some of the things that God's done in the past, that will fill me, so I'm going to go back. And he even begins to use these, like, these vivid metaphors for what he's expecting as a result of going back. He says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I, I, let's just stop there, right? I love fat and rich food. I mean, 
that is basically my food pyramid right there. It's fat and rich, and then I you know, swap it over the next day, and that's what brings me a balanced diet. And I, I, I go, go out to a restaurant. If I go out to a restaurant this afternoon, I'm going to be basically saying, waiter, what do you got in fat and rich? Or, or just bring me fat, and I can sprinkle rich on it. Think about, what, think about the language that he's using here. Think about what he's trying to say, what he's, what he's calling. Think, think about Christmas dinner. Think about Thanksgiving or feasting on a holiday. Think about those times where the feeling that you had was of being full and satisfied. That's what he's saying. David is saying, I remember what it's like to be full and satisfied and I will enjoy that again. Are you empty this morning? Is that where you are? Did God bring you from wherever you were this weekend or wherever you were this morning and sit you down right here today? Because this is where you honestly are. You're empty. Let me encourage you. Go back. Go back and then preach faith until you have it and then preach faith because you have it. Love your kids until you feel it again. And then love your kids because you feel it again. Thank God until you are satisfied. And then thank God and praise God because you are satisfied. And to arrive there, we go back. So we go up. We go back. And finally, we go loud. We go loud. You know, Scripture reveals many of David's faults, but among them is not an absence of passion. Uh, and it's funny the kind of words, the kind of language David uses, the, the pathos that David expresses. There is the sense that where for David, God's answer for empty is not the, not what I can be tempted to do. You know, you know we, we begin to feel empty, we feel like God has abandoned us, and, and we start to rant. Or we feel victimized. We feel like God didn't deliver on his side of the bargain. But what David does is he says, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to move toward God, but my move towards God is going to be like radical. I'm going to have this whole body response to God. Just look at the physical responses he's talking about. My lips will praise you. My hands will be lifted up. I will sing for joy again. You know, he's, he's, he's using this it's almost like David is saying, yeah, I feel empty, but it seems like things are so nuts that I really have to do something that, that is totally paradoxical. You know, that just means it's, a, it's an apparent contradiction. I feel one way, but I'm going to respond as if I'm feeling the complete opposite. So after going up and going back, David says, now, now this is my third step. I'm going to respond with strong, truth-based affections for God. I'm going to get loud. I'm going to get loud. And I'm going to use my hands and I'm going to get loud. And, and, and going loud for David seems to mean that it's this, like this whole body response. It's not just like he's sitting in the corner and pondering and, and just having an exchange with God, which is legitimate. But that's not what David's doing here as a result of being empty. He's bringing something completely different. He's bringing a kind of passion. And you know, you, you got to know me to know how funny it is that I would be making this point because I'm, I'm not a, 
I envy passionate people. I envy people. I envy Ronnie. I envy people for whom passion comes easier because that's not me. I mean, I'm, I'm Dutch. Uh, you know. <laughs> Raised Presbyterian, you know, in Pittsburgh. My dad was a steel worker. His dad was a steel worker. His grandfather was a steel worker. His great-grandfather was a steel worker. I may have seen my dad cry once, maybe. 1960, Mazeroski hits the home run. In the bottom of the ninth, the Pirates win the World Series. I, th I think he choked up. There wasn't there were a lot of emotion being expressed around our home. There was a lot of a, guys in my neighborhood were not, were not convening support groups. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they weren't convening groups where they're talking to one another about their feelings. And when their feelings did come out, it was typically in four-letter words. That was my orientation. I mean, I could take you to a moment where before my wedding, my brother and I, we got married in a church, Kim and I, my brother and I were, were uh, in the basement, we were sitting there, we're looking at one another, and, uh, and I was looking at him, he's looking at me, and you know, we weren't saying anything, we we're just looking at one another, because that's what brothers do. You know, you don't talk a lot, you just, because you know, you kind of have, you look at one another. And I, and I remember looking at him, and I just, I just be, broke down for about 10, 15 seconds. I just broke down and wept. And he's looking at me, and I, I'm, you know, I kind of said, I kind of, you know, pulled that all together, and I was looking at him, and he was like, what was that? <laughs> and I was saying, I have no idea what that was. But I think, I think it's connected to this thing that's happening in about an hour. You know, this wedding thing that I'm doing, I think that's what... I think the two things are connected. And I, feel, I think I'm feeling something about that. Isn't this interesting? Yeah, and, and again, my, my religious culture, it was like I was, you know, I, I was raised in a church where unless there was a robbery, nobody had their hands up. It, you know, there was nobody that was going to have their hands. It was in the pockets completely. So here's the reality that I had to come to grips with. And that is that when one reads Scripture, strong affections, going loud, strong affections are a claim that my master makes upon me. It's a claim my master makes upon me even when I'm empty. Even when I'm empty. You know why? Because the heart of worship isn't simply to express present feeling. It's not simply to, to relate to God of how we're feeling in the moment. It's to respond to past truth and to recognize and get excited about future promises. And sometimes we're feeling it in the moment and sometimes we're not. But it's about the relationship. See, I don't take Kim out on a date and debate whether I'm supposed to express affections to her. You know, I don't examine my preferences, my parents, and my upbringing, and my, my dad, and uh, my personality profile. Does my personality profile really reveal that, my, that affections are consistent with how I'm created? You know, there are times, I mean, let's be honest, you've been married for any period of time at all. You know that sometimes if you act consistent with your feelings, there's going to be a crime within the home. And sometimes you don't feel it. 
Sometimes you feel empty, but it's the marriage that calls forth the affections. It's not your personality. It's the marriage that calls forth the love. It's not how you're feeling in the moment. Yes, sometimes we feel empty, but that doesn't make us any less married. God says it's not about your type. It's not about your temperament. It's not about your personality. It's about our response to truth, even when we're empty, even when we're not feeling it. Do you see that? Do you see where David is? We, are, we get passionate about God, not because of how we feel, but because of the relationship that we have with Him. Not because of how we're wired, but because of what He's done by dying for us on the cross and rising on the third day. Because God was satisfied with Christ at the cross, we can be satisfied with God even when we feel empty. Because of the cross, we know what this, when when verse 3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, in Jesus, we see the embodiment of the steadfast love of God. We see it in his sacrifices for us, his service for us, his death for us. And because we've seen that love, we know that's fixed. And it doesn't necessarily always translate into good feelings each day. I know some of you might be here and you might be saying, Dave, you, you're, you're a nice guy, but you don't get it. The doctor called, and it's, it's so much worse than I expected. Or do you realize there's no jobs in this area? Do you, do you realize what's happening? Do you understand how, what the feeling of being so in debt creates on a man? How the, crushes, the crushing burden of that? Or, Dave, do you understand what it's like to be depressed? What is it like to wake up in the morning and have your eyes snap open and feel like the greatest act of courage that you're going to have in your life is simply to get out of bed? Because emotionally, you're flatlined. In fact, you're below flatline. And I'm just too empty. It's just not there. And if that's you, please hear the fundamental point I want to leave you with, and that is that empty is as empty does. So when David was in the same place that I just described, his approach went something like this. I'm going to praise God until I am filled, and then I'm going to praise God because I am filled. I'm going to praise God until I am moved, and then I'm going to praise God because I am moved. I'm going to praise God until I am feeling, and then I'm going to praise God because I am feeling. I'm going to praise God until I am satisfied in God, and then I'm going to praise God because I am satisfied in God. David got And there's sometimes, I need to do the same thing. I do. And maybe you do as well. So if you're here this morning and you are not satisfied with your passion, or maybe you're not passionate about being satisfied, um, you, you're in the right place. Because none of all of us here can relate to that. But let us together, as we close, let us together draw near to God. And let's ask Him to stir our affections for Him and to satisfy our quest for satisfaction in Him and ask Him to help us to lift our voices with a new awareness that though we feel empty this morning, God is still worthy. Because there is 
a day that is coming when we're going to feel whole. There's a day that is coming where we will be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray right now for each and every person who, who's here and would identify with that feeling and experience of emptiness. And I want to ask you to not only uncover their heart through your word, but, but to now fill it as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Fill it as we conclude in worship. Let us express our affection towards you because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For word.